Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. For over 175 years, four purposes have defined Hillsdale's mission, learning, character, faith, and freedom. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to our brothers and sisters at Hillsdale for their great sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. You're listening to the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Independence Day. It's an important day. I want to take a little bit of time talking about this with you. Giving you a little bit of information that I doubt. I doubt many of you have ever been exposed to. Let's start this way. 1776, the 4th of July, didn't just happen all of a sudden. It wasn't an impetuous act, as they point out in history.com. Thirteen colonies banding together, first 12, then the 13th, Rhode Island, to fight and win a war of independence against the crown was a culmination of a series of events which had begun more than a decade earlier. Escalations began shortly after the end of the French and Indian War, known elsewhere as the Seven Years' War in 1763. Here are a few of the main events that took place, although not all of them. The Stamp Act of 1765 to recoup some of the massive debt left over from the war with France, the British Parliament passed laws such as the Stamp Act, which for the first time taxed a wide range of transactions in the colonies. Up until then, each colony had its own government, which decided which taxes they would have and collected them. Says William Randall, Professor Emeritus History Chaplain College, author numerous works on the early history. They felt that they'd spent a, spent a lot of blood and treasure to protect the colonists from the Indians, and they should pay their fair share. That was the British view. The colonists didn't see it that way. 
They resented not only having to buy goods from the British, but pay tax on them as well. The tax never got collected because there were riots all over the place, Randall says. Ultimately, Benjamin Franklin convinced the British to rescind it. But that only made things worse. They made the Americans think they could push back against other acts of the crown. Sometime later, two years later, in fact, the Townsend Acts. Parliament again tried to assert its authority by passing legislation to tax goods that the Americans imported from Great Britain. The Crown established a board of customs commissioners to stop smuggling and corruption among local officials in the colonies who were often in on illicit trade. Americans struck back by organizing a boycott of the British goods that were subject to taxation and began harassing the British custom commissioners. And in an effort to quell the resistance, the British sent troops to occupy Boston, which only deepened the ill feeling. The Boston Massacre, three years later, 1770. Simmering tensions between the British occupiers and the Boston residents boiled over one late afternoon when a disagreement between an apprentice wig maker and a British soldier led to a crowd of 200 colonists surrounding seven British troops when the Americans began taunting the troops and allegedly throwing things at them. The soldiers apparently lost their cool and began firing recklessly into the crowd. As the smoke cleared, three men, including an African-American sailor named Crispus Attucks, were dead. Two others were mortally wounded. The massacre became a tool for the colonists, especially after Paul Revere distributed an engraving that misleadingly depicted the British as the aggressors. The Boston Tea Party, 1773. The British eventually withdrew forces from Boston and repealed much of the onerous Townsend legislation. But they left in place the tax on tea, and in 1773 enacted a new law, the Tea Act, to prop up the financially struggling British East Indian Company. And that act gave the company extended favorable treatment under tax regulations so it could sell tea at a price that undercut American merchants who imported tea from elsewhere. That didn't sit well with Americans. They didn't want the British telling them that they had to buy their tea. The Americans wanted to be able to trade with any country they wanted. The Sons of Liberty, which would be headed by somebody you may have heard of, Sam Adams, decided to confront the British head-on. Thinly disguised as Mohawks, they boarded three ships in Boston Harbor, destroyed more than 92,000 pounds of British tea by dumping it into the harbor. They didn't have an EPA back then. To make the point that they were rebels rather than vandals, they avoided harming any of the crew or damaging the ships themselves. The next day, they even replaced a padlock that had been broken. But the act of defiance ticked off the British government. Many of the East Indian Company shareholders were members of Parliament. They each had paid a thousand pounds sterling, about a million dollars in today's money, for a share of the company to get a piece of the action from all this tea that they were going to force down the throats of the colonists. So when these bottom-of-the-rung people in Boston 
destroyed their tea, that was a serious thing to them. Then the parliament passed a year later the Coercive Acts. So you could see this is building. In response to the Boston Tea Party, the British government decided it had to tame the rebellious colonists in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. In the spring of 1774, Parliament passed a series of laws, the Coercive Acts, which closed Boston Harbor until restitution was paid by the destroyed tea, replaced the colony's elected council with one appointed by the British, gave sweeping powers to the British military governor, General Thomas Gage, and forbade town meetings without approval. Yet another provision protected British colonial officials who were charged with capital offenses from being tried in Massachusetts, instead requiring they be sent to another colony or back to Great Britain for trial. By the way, one of the members of Parliament who objected to the way the colonists were being treated was a gentleman you may have heard of called Edmund Burke. He didn't think the Parliament and the king should be tightening the screws against the American colonists. But perhaps the most provocative provision was the Quartering Act, which allowed British military officials to demand accommodations for their troops in unoccupied houses and buildings, rather than having to stay out in the countryside. Well, it didn't force the colonists to board troops in their own homes. They had to pay for the expense of housing and feeding the soldiers were occupying their town. The courting of troops eventually became one of the grievances incited in the Declaration of Independence. April 1775, April 8th to be precise, Lexington and Concord. British General Thomas Gage led a force of British soldiers from Boston to Lexington. 5 a.m. in the morning, I might add, where he planned to capture colonial radical leaders Sam Adams, and John Hancock. And they don't add it here, but also to disarm the colonists. And then head to Concord and seize their gunpowder. But American spies got wind of the plan, and with the help of riders such as Paul Revere, word spread to be ready for the British. That's the famous midnight ride, and he was not the only one but they needed to get the Adams and Hancock and get him the heck out of Lexington, which is exactly what they did. On Lexington Common, the British force was confronted by 77 American militiamen. They began shooting at each other. Seven Americans died, but other militiamen managed to stop the British at Concord and continued to harass them on the retreat back to Boston. The British lost 73 dead with another 174 wounded and 26 missing in action. And the bloody encounter proved to the British that the colonists were fearsome foes who had to be taken seriously. And so you had the Battle of Lexington at 5 a.m. in the morning, and as the British were pulling back into Concord, that was about 8 a.m. the same morning, they were beaten at Lexington, and they were beaten at Concord. The British attacks on coastal towns, though the Revolutionary War's hostility started with Lexington and Concord. It was unclear whether the southern colonies, whose interests didn't necessarily align with the northern colonies, would, would be all in for a war of independence. 
The Southerners were totally dependent upon the British to buy their crops, particularly their cotton, and they didn't trust the Yankees up north anyway. And in, in New England, the Puritans thought the Southerners were lazy. But that was before the brutal British naval bombardments and burning of the coastal towns of Falmouth, Massachusetts, Norfolk, Virginia, and helped to unify the colonies. In Falmouth, where townspeople had to grab their possessions and flee for their lives, Northerners had to face up to the fear that the British would do whatever they wanted them to do and do whatever they had to do to defeat the colonists. Soon thereafter, there was the Battle of Bunker Hill. Actually, Breed's Hill within Bunker's Hill. Bunker Hill. Where the British sent in more forces. Three weeks after Concord. The American militia, that is the American colonists, were trying to prepare for what they knew was coming the day before the attack. And they dug in at Breed's Hill, which is part of Bunker's Hill. About two and a half to three weeks before that battle, a letter was written to the New York Assembly effectively begging New York for gunpowder. Among those who signed it was Joseph Warren. Three men signed it, including Joseph Warren. Joseph Warren was considered the number one revolutionary in Boston. He was a renowned doctor. He was in his mid-30s. And he was the leading revolutionary, he and Sam Adams and later John Hancock and Paul Revere and so forth. Most of you know of him from me, otherwise he's mostly unknown, but he had a crucial role in the earliest days. He was far better known than Jefferson, Washington, or all the rest. And he was a marked man. The British wanted him dead. About three weeks after Concord, the British decided to send more troops to quell the colonists. They dig in, the Minutemen and other militia, at Breed's Hill. The British charge up the hill. They take many casualties. They're forced back. They charge up the hill the second time. They take more casualties and they're pushed back. They charged up the hill the third time. And the colonists ran out of gunpowder. Hand-to-hand combat on the front lines. General Powell, uh, excuse me, General Page told the colonists to pull back. Many on the front line refused hand-to-hand combat. Among them, Joseph Warren. But they couldn't possibly win. One of the senior officers for the British walked up to Joseph Warren and shot him between the eyes. When the battle was over, they chopped his body up into pieces. They urinated on it. 
They covered it with dirt. Later, Paul Revere and others would search for the body and they would find it. Because Paul Revere, a silversmith, had made one of the false teeth in the mouth of Joseph Warren. And he recognized it. More when I return. Mark Lovin. Folks, it's no secret that Americans are more divided than ever, and it's not just over what policies will improve our great country. No, it's over whether America is great at all, whether America deserves our love. That's why Imprimus, Hillsdale's Digest of Liberty, is so important. Imprimus looks at the issues of the day from a constitutional perspective, reminding citizens always of our great heritage of liberty. For 50 years, Imprimus has featured speeches given at Hillsdale events by the smartest conservative thinkers and writers. These days, Hillsdale publishes people like Victor Davis Hanson, Molly Hemingway, and Chris Rufo. Over 6.2 million American households and businesses receive Imprimus absolutely free, and I urge you to sign up for it today at absolutely no charge. I always look forward to receiving my copy of Imprimus. My friends at Hillsdale and I want you to have a free subscription as well. To get your free subscription, go to levinforhillsdale.com right now, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. This is Mark Levin wishing you a happy 4th of July. Now back to the best of me. About a month after the first shots were fired at Lexington in Kentucky, the Second Continental Congress met inside Independence Hall in Philadelphia. That was the Pennsylvania Assembly House. As they were concerned and decided they needed to prepare for war, they established a Continental Army and elected George Washington as the Commander-in-Chief. They also drafted the Olive Branch Petition, it was called, and sent it to King George, that's George III, in hopes of reaching a peaceful resolution. The king refused to hear the petition and declared the American colonies in revolt. So what did the Continental Congress, the Second Continental Congress, do after that? I'll explain after the break. We'll be right back. Folks, it's no secret that Americans are more divided than ever, and it's not just over what policies will improve our great country. No, it's over whether America is great at all, whether America deserves our love. That's why Imprimus, Hillsdale's Digest of Liberty, is so important. Imprimus looks at the issues of the day from a constitutional perspective, reminding citizens always of our great heritage of liberty. For 50 years, Imprimus has featured speeches given at Hillsdale events by the smartest conservative thinkers and writers. These days, Hillsdale publishes people like Victor Davis Hanson, Molly Hemingway, and Chris Rufo. Over 6.2 million American households and businesses receive Imprimus absolutely free, and I urge you to sign up for it today at absolutely no charge. I always look forward to receiving my copy of Imprimus. My friends at Hillsdale and I want you to have a free subscription as well. To get your free subscription, go to levinforhillsdale.com right now, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. This is the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Independence Day. Having rejected to even hear the, the olive branch petition from the colonists, the colonists would meet on 
In June 1776, Virginia Delegate Richard Henry Lee put forth the Resolution for Independence. Resolved that these United Colonies are, and of right, ought to be free and independent states. But voting was postponed while some of the delegates worked to convince others to support independence. But a committee of five men was assigned to draft a document of independence. John Adams of Massachusetts. Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania. Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, and Robert Livingston of New York. As you know, Jefferson did most of the work drafting the original document in his lodgings at 7th and Market Street. The building's no longer there. And without getting into every aspect of this, on July 2, 1776, that Second Continental Congress voted to adopt Lee's resolution for independence. This is the day that John Adams thought should be celebrated, which would be Saturday this, this year, with pomp and parade. How do we know? Because that's what he wrote to Abigail Adams on July 3rd, 1776. But between July 2nd and July 4th, Congress argued over every word in Jefferson's draft of the Declaration making a number of changes. Now, Jefferson sat in the back and was fuming while his document was changed. And one of the things removed from his initial draft was his condemnation of slavery and the slave trade. But the delegates from South Carolina and Georgia threatened to leave. And they knew they were already at war and they could not afford any of the other colonies peeling off, period. Now, they didn't actually sign the document that day. After New York's delegates received instructions from home to vote for independence, they'd initially abstained. The document was sent to Timothy Matlack to be engrossed, that is, handwritten. Fifty of the 56 delegates signed the engrossed Declaration of Independence inside Independence Hall on August 2nd. 1776. August 2nd, 1776. So actually, independence was declared on July 2nd. The Declaration of Independence was adopted on July 4th. Most of the signatures occurred on August 2nd. Now, Why did they write the document that they wrote? Where did Jefferson get his ideas? On June 24, 1826, in Monticello, Jefferson received a letter. In modern day terms, he was accused of copying thoughts and ideas from others. And he was invited to attend uh, the 50th anniversary of independence. But he was old and he was frail. And in fact, he would die two weeks later. And Jefferson made the point that his goal wasn't to reinvent ideas. No. His goal was to underscore and enshrine ideas. 
And that's exactly what he did. Jefferson's words were profound. In fact, the Congress's words were profound. Jefferson, as Jefferson wished, we should refresh our recollection of these rights from time to time. And what are the words that we should refresh our recollection about? When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, to assume among the powers of earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to those opinions of mankind. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The near universal appeal of this wording and these principles among America's founders is underscored further in other important historical documents of the period. The Virginia Declaration of Rights was adopted on June 12, 1776, predating the Declaration of Independence by a few weeks. It was principally drafted by George Mason would also play a significant role at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Now, the prominence of the Virginia Declaration is indisputable, as some of its language was, in fact, borrowed by Jefferson in drafting the Declaration of Independence. In fact, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, Sam Adams, used similar language in drafting future declarations of rights and constitutions for their own states. By the way, this is in Rediscovering Americanism. My book. Section 1 of the Virginia Declaration provides that all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights of which when they enter into a state of society they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity. Namely the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. You can hear the overlap. The Pennsylvania Declaration of Rights, adopted on August 16, 1776, about a month and a half after the Declaration of Independence, its main author was Benjamin Franklin. It states in Section 1 that all men are born equally free and independent and have certain natural, inherent, and inalienable rights, amongst which are the enjoying and defending of life and liberty, acquiring of possessing and protecting property, Pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Article 1 of the Massachusetts Declaration of Rights, adopted in 1780, and whose authors included John Adams and Samuel Adams. It states, All men are born free and equal, and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. But the Declaration of Independence rightly stands as the formal consensus proclamation for America's independence and founding. And after several iterations, it was adopted by the Second Continental Congress, originally convened in Philadelphia in May 1775 after the battles of Lexington and Concord. 
all the colonies were represented. And while most of the delegates initially opposed independence, as Congress's entreaties for peace were met with intensified British military aggression, became clear that the colonies would have to choose their independence or subjugation. On May 8, 1825, 45, excuse me, 49 years after the adoption of the Declaration, in a letter replying to Henry Lee about the source of the ideas and language in the Declaration, this is very important, Jefferson succinctly explained, with respect to our rights and the acts of the British government contravening those rights, there was one opinion on this side of the water. All American Whigs thought alike on this subject. When forced, therefore, to resort to arms for redress, an appeal to the tribunal of the world was deemed proper for our justification. This was the object of the Declaration of Independence, not to find out new principles or new arguments never before thought of, not merely to say things which had never been said before, but to put place before mankind the common sense of the subject in terms so plain and firm as to command their assent and to justify ourselves in the independent stand we are compelled to take. Neither aiming at originality of principle or sentiment, nor yet copied from any particular and previous writing, is intended to be an expression of the American mind and to give to that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion. All its authority rests, then, on the harmonizing sentiments of the day, whether expressed in conversation, in letters, printed essays, or in elementary books of public right, as Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, Sidney, etc. The historical documents which you mention as in your possession ought all to be found, and I am persuaded you will find, to be corroborative of the facts and principles advanced in the Declaration. From where do these all-important ideas come? We wish to truly understand liberty, the civil society, and America's founding. That is our birthright. This is me. We must examine further. And so what did I do in furtherance of this in rediscovering Americans? We took a much closer look at Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, and Sidney. The most influential philosopher during the revolutionary period was the indispensable English thinker John Locke, who lived from 1633 to 1704, who in his The Second Treatise of Government, first published in 1689, inspired countless leading American colonists and founders, including the delegates who gathered at the Second Continental Convention. Indeed, having studied the philosophical origins of the American Revolution, Harvard University professor Bernard Bailyn found that in pamphlet after pamphlet, the American writers cited John Locke on natural rights and on the social and governmental contract. Now let me pause, but first a footnote. Judge Jackson is now Associate Justice Jackson. She was sworn in today. And in written questions, she was asked her view on natural law. And she said she does not take a position on it. It's in virtually all of the most important founding documents in our country. 
It comes from Aristotle, Cicero, John Locke, who was the most widely read philosopher in the revolutionary period. And she said she does not take a position on natural law. Why? Because in order to embrace Marxism, Woodrow Wilson, among several other the so-called leading intellectuals of the progressive movement, rejected Locke and rejected the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. The most appalling thing that was said during that hearing was not that she wouldn't define a woman or couldn't define a woman. It came afterwards in her written response that she took no position on natural law. It's right there in the Declaration and in all the declarations of the states. Locke wrote that man is born with God-given inalienable rights, among them personal and individual liberty. He said the state of nature has a law of nature to govern it, which obliges everyone and reason, which is that law, teaches all mankind who will but consult it, that being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in life, health, liberty, or possessions. For men being all the workmen, a one omnipotent and uh, infinitely wise maker, all the servants of one sovereign, one sovereign master, sent into the world by his order and about his business, they are his property, whose workmanship they are made to last during his, not one another's pleasure. And being furnished with, like faculties, sharing all in one community of nature, there cannot be supposed any such subordination among us that may authorize us to destroy one another, as if we were made for one another's uses, as the inferior ranks of creatures are for ours. Everyone, as he is bound to preserve himself, and not to quit his station willfully, so by the like reason, when his own preservation comes not in competition, in other words, war, ought to be as much as he can preserve the rest of mankind. Locke said that there is a circle of freedom surrounding each person and all people at birth. And within that circle is the absolute human right to live and live freely. This is a natural right, born of natural law, or the law of nature. It is divine. It is eternal. It is unalterable by mankind. Man also has the ability to reason. And it is through reason that he discovers and discerns natural law, his natural rights, and their application to all humanity. And to keep it very simple, think of the golden rule. The golden rule applies across humanity. Doesn't mean it's, it's enforced. Doesn't mean it follows. Murder is a sin, regardless of who does it. The Ten Commandments, and what the Ten Commandments provide, are God's laws to live by. That's natural law. Be right back. Mark Lovin.
Folks, it's no secret that Americans are more divided than ever, and it's not just over what policies will improve our great country. No, it's over whether America is great at all, whether America deserves our love. That's why Imprimus, Hillsdale's Digest of Liberty, is so important. Imprimus looks at the issues of the day from a constitutional perspective, reminding citizens always of our great heritage of liberty. For 50 years, Imprimus has featured speeches given at Hillsdale events by the smartest conservative thinkers and writers. These days, Hillsdale publishes people like Victor Davis Hanson, Molly Hemingway, and Chris Rufo. Over 6.2 million American households and businesses receive Imprimus absolutely free, and I urge you to sign up for it today at absolutely no charge. I always look forward to receiving my copy of Imprimus. My friends at Hillsdale and I want you to have a free subscription as well. To get your free subscription, go to levinforhillsdale.com right now, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. This is the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Independence Day. Let's look at the terminology quickly at the beginning of the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that is, knowable through reason. That all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with a certain unalienable rights. What is that? The divine law of nature obtains everywhere and applies to all. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is the right to live freely and happily. There's not a word in the declaration promoting slavery. Not one word. And as Abraham Lincoln said, the man who did more than any other human being in this country to right or wrong, in this case slavery, and he gave his life for it as he was assassinated. He would cite the Declaration of Independence over and over and over again in defense of America's founding, in the defense of its framers and its founders, that these men who did struggle with slavery in Philadelphia twice at the assembly that met over the Declaration of Independence and the assembly that met over the Constitution of the United States met in the same room, the Pennsylvania Assembly Room in Philadelphia. But they couldn't resolve it there and then. When they declared war, they couldn't afford to lose any colonies. And when they needed a constitution, the country was going bankrupt and being threatened by world powers. And it was Lincoln who said, these men left it to their children and their grandchildren to fix this. And that, by God, is what we're going to do. If there was no United States, if there was no 1776, if there was no 1787, there would have been no civil war. And slavery, perhaps, would have gone on much, much longer in what would be the separate territory or territories without the United States of America. I know of no other country that fought a civil war and almost destroyed itself in order to eliminate slavery. I'll be right back. This segment of the podcast is exclusively sponsored by Pure Talk. 
Pure Talk offers great coverage and can save your family money on your wireless bill every single month. Go to puretalk.com to find the plan that's right for you. Thank you again for listening, and thank you so much for this sponsorship, Pure Talk. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. This is the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Independence Day. The Democrat Party and the American Marxists, they're one and the same. So are the media. And they've been thinking they had a clear path. Whether it's abortion, whether it's prayer, whether it's imposing their ideology on your school kids. A clear path. Destroying the notion of binary sexes that goes back what? As far as man and woman themselves? They lie about the language. They lie about biology. They lie about American history. And they felt they've had a clear path. You're pushing back. And some of our institutions are pushing back. They refuse to be threatened. They refuse to collapse. But this is the ongoing battle. This is what's taking place right now. The Democrat Party doesn't support Roe versus Wade. Doesn't even support the Casey decision in 1992. The Democrat Party insists on nationwide, every corner of this country, embracing infanticide. That's its position. That's its official position. And it is amazing to me, with all these Sunday hosts, only one, Martha McCollum, asked Stacey Abrams if she favors any limits on abortion. And she wouldn't answer effectively. Because they don't. They do not favor any limits on abortion. Now it's time to push back, America. It's time to defend our justices in this court and what they did. It's time to push back. The court didn't rule that abortion is unconstitutional. The court didn't rule that abortion is constitutional. The court ruled it's none of its business. But that was a bridge too far. That was a bridge too far. So we hear from exactly the same people who hate Trump, from exactly the same people who lied about Russia collusion, from exactly the same people who insist on masks and vaccines, exactly the same people who lie to us day in and day out, the Chuck Todds of the world. I'll get to him in a minute. Dishonest, ideologically driven, power-hungry, individuals all organized under the democrat party and beyond they are at war with this country they are threatening justices they are threatening to change the supreme court they've called the court illegitimate they've insisted that their mob take to the streets 
They've insisted that they will defy the court. Should not the January 6th committee close its doors forever now and just abandon its illegitimate pursuit? The answer is yes. We had a decision today. Straightforward case. Football coach. Coach Joseph Kennedy, as written by Post Millennial, he'd lost his job as a coach because he, he would kneel in midfield post games to offer prayer, usually about 30 seconds. The fine was because the Bremerton School District believed that to allow Kennedy to pray would indicate that they were endorsing his religious beliefs. How? I have no idea. But Justice Gorsuch wrote for the majority, six to three, that reasoning was misguided. Both the free exercise and free speech clauses of the First Amendment protect expressions like Mr. Kennedy's. Well, at first, Kennedy offered the prayer on his own. Over time, student players voluntarily wanted to and did join him. When the athletes asked if they could join him, Kennedy told them, it's a free country, you can do what you want. And so they did. Kennedy served at the school for seven years before there was any issue or complaint, while either his players on the field or others. So the claim was that Kennedy had violated the Establishment Clause, you know, because standing in the middle of a field after a game, kneeling and saying a prayer where other people voluntarily join you is clearly the establishment of religion, right? Gorsuch wrote that nor does a proper understanding of the amendment's establishment clause require the government to single out private religious speech for special disfavor. The Constitution and the best of our traditions counsel mutual respect and tolerance, not censorship and suppression for religious and non-religious views alike. Exactly. Now, after Coach Kennedy received the letter, he complied with its terms got the letter from the school, which included no longer referencing his religious beliefs and motivational speeches, no longer offering locker room prayer and giving up the midfield post-game prayers. But for Kennedy, this this became difficult, the mid-post-game prayers, midfield, and he felt that he had broken his commitment to God and giving up the practice, he pushed back against the school and this restriction, asked to be allowed to offer pr- his own prayer. But the school declined to make any allowances. Said Kennedy could not appear to endorse prayer while on duty as a coach paid by the school district. But Kennedy kept praying, often waiting until the prayers were engaged in something else. The players, that is, off the field. But players continued to join him voluntarily. The school wanted to hide his faith, but the court declared this to be a violation. Gorsuch said that the First Amendment doubly protects religious speech is no accident. It is a natural outgrowth of the framers' distrust of government attempts to regulate religion and suppress dissent. The contested exercise before us does not involve leading prayers with the team or before any other captive audience. Mr. Kennedy's religious beliefs do not require him to lead any prayer involving students. At the district's request, he voluntarily discontinued the school tradition of locker room prayers and his post-game religious talks to students. 
that they disciplined him only for his decision to persist in praying quietly without his players after three games in October 2015. And in forbidding Mr. Kennedy's brief prayer, the district failed to act pursuant to a neutral and generally applicable rule. So what do the other three do? The three radicals on the bench who nobody ever protests, nobody ever demeans, nobody ever calls liars, nobody ever attacks their spouses, assuming they have spouses. No. What do they do? More knee-jerk pablum. Sotomayor, of course, writes the the dissent for the three. It says, among other things, it forces states to be entangled with religion. How? Does Sotomayor understand, do any of these people understand, that she is carrying the banner for Justice Black? Justice Hugo Black? This separation of church and state, which is not in the Constitution, was in a letter that Jefferson wrote, is cited all the time, and Jefferson himself wasn't even at the Constitutional Convention, he was in France. How does that force the state to be entangled with religion? Hugo Black, I told you about the Everson case, but it wasn't just that case. Was a lawyer for the Klan. He became a senator from Alabama. He became a great advocate of FDR and the New Deal. Which is why he was FDR's first choice to go on the Supreme Court. He was a reliable rubber stamp. And he despised the Catholic Church and the Pope. And he led this charge on quote-unquote separation of church and state. So this really is appalling. And so this cultural Marxism that's being pushed by the left, by the Democrat Party, by their surrogates, by their representatives, got another kick in the nuts today with this decision. It's a modest decision, as the abortion decision was a modest decision. A very modest decision. Nobody took anything from anybody. Nobody gave anything to anybody. Joseph Kennedy was the victim. And by the way, on this abortion issue... You understand there's an entire abortion industry out there. Whether it's Planned Parenthood and hundreds of other groups where people make their money advocating for abortion and performing abortions. And the more abortions they can perform, the bigger their organization gets, the more money they make. Abortion on demand, that is the position of the Democrat Party. And what they sought to do, right after this decision, the first draft was leaked. What they sought to do was to wipe out virtually every single regulation in every state with a federal law that imposed abortion on demand, partial birth abortion, on the entire country. 
That's what they sought to do. It was so bad that Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski were fairly radical pro-aborts. Could not even vote for it. Even they couldn't vote for it. But every one of these so-called moderate Democrat senators out of the mansion, every single one of them voted for it. And I watched very carefully. Not a single Sunday show, Mr. Producer. Not on CBS, NBC, ABC. Not a single network Sunday show. Not one had the guts to show what partial birth abortion is. Not one. Why is that? Why didn't they run it, show it, and say this is what the Democrat Party supports? This is what they support. Not Roe v. Wade that had three trimesters with the last trimester. Allowing for a state interest because the state had a fundamental right and interest? No. They wanted to blow through all the state restrictions. We're not having a logical, truthful debate in this country. 90% of the morons in the streets don't even understand what they're fighting for. 90% of the journalists are lying through their damn teeth. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile are charging you a premium fee every month for data you don't use. Stop paying for things you don't use. Instead of paying $89 a month to your current provider, pay just $20 to Pure Talk for what you actually need. I made the switch, and I'll be honest, I was nervous at first thinking, well, is the coverage really going to be that good? Am I going to drop calls, slow internet? I can tell you firsthand. The 5G service is that good. Switching to Pure Talk was that easy. So listen, don't sit on the fence any longer. You're being ripped off by greedy wireless companies. It's time to take the leap and start saving money every month. Go to puretalk.com, select a plan, then enter promo code Levin Podcast. That's L-E-V-I-N Podcast and save 50% off your first month. You can literally be switched over to Pure Talk service in less than 10 minutes. So go to puretalk.com and enter promo code Levin Podcast. This is Mark Levin wishing you a happy 4th of July. Now back to the best of me. I want to remind you that this entire movement really started in an, in an aggressive way, in a broad way, with uh, Margaret Sanger the founder of Planned Parenthood. Did she promote birth control? Yes. But she also advanced a project called the Negro Project. And she wrote in her autobiography about speaking to a Ku Klux Klan group, advocated for eugenics approach to breeding for, quote, the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks, those human weeds. This is her which threatened the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization, unquote. In a letter in 1939 to Dr. C.J. Gamble, the founder of Planned Parenthood, Sanger, urged him to get over his reluctance to hire a full-time Negro physician as the colored Negroes can get closer to their own members and more or less lay their cards on the table, which means their ignorance, superstitions, and doubt. Sanger urged Dr. Gamble to enlist the help of spiritual leaders to justify their deadly work, writing, quote, 
We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out the idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. This is her. Planned Parenthood was founded by a racist. A white woman. That's the history. That's the history. And you and I are funding it through the federal government. You and I are funding it. Female African Americans are 13% of the population. They make up almost 40% of all abortions. None of this information is presented to the American people by Chuck Todd. Why? Because their party, the Democrat Party, was all for it. Could you think of anything more effective for a racist Democrat Party? Woodrow Wilson, racist, segregationist. The Klan was an offspring, really, of the Confederacy, members of the Democrat Party. This is what this mentality is. And Marxism isn't a hell of a lot different. Che Guevara was a racist, executing black Cubans over other Cubans. Xi is a racist, executing Muslims by by the tens of thousands. I'll be right back. Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile are charging you a premium fee every month for data you don't use. Stop paying for things you don't use. Instead of paying $89 a month to your current provider, pay just $20 to Pure Talk for what you actually need. I made the switch, and I'll be honest. I was nervous at first, thinking, well, is the coverage really going to be that good? Am I going to drop calls, slow internet? I can tell you firsthand. The 5G service is that good. Switching to Pure Talk was that easy. So listen, don't sit on the fence any longer. You're being ripped off by greedy wireless companies. It's time to take the leap and start saving money every month. Go to puretalk.com, select a plan, then enter promo code Levin Podcast. That's L-E-V-I-N Podcast and save 50% off your first month. You can literally be switched over to Pure Talk service in less than 10 minutes. So go to puretalk.com and enter promo code Levin Podcast. This is the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Independence Day. So-called Sunday news programming. Our self-appointed, narcissistic, self-aggrandizing elitists who aren't elite in anything, actually, speaking to others of the same mindset. Not speaking to average people, not going into communities. No, no, no. Speaking to each other. Politicians talking to phony journalists, phony journalists talking to phony professors, phony professors, and down the list. And one of them would be Martha Raddatz, Martha Raddatz, who had the Obamas at her wedding. Now listen to this. ABC's This Week. Cut three, go. On Friday morning, women in this country, like they have for nearly 50 years, woke up with a constitutional right to abortion, a right enshrined by the Supreme Court's 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade and reaffirmed again and again. Stop. That's not correct. 
As a matter of fact, in the last trimester, the state has a right to interfere. Have you ever read the Roe v. Wade decision, Martha? No, you haven't. And there have been restrictions on abortion throughout the country, depending on the circumstances and other, and other matters. You don't have a quote-unquote right to an abortion, except in a handful of states, a half a dozen states, right up to the end. But in the other states, you don't. You have some issues that put some limitations. It's called the science, Martha. So you start out with a flat-out lie because you're emoting. Go ahead. After 10 a.m. on Friday, a legal earthquake. The court stripping women of that fundamental right. In the a court six- didn't strip women of a right to have an abortion. This is why people get confused. This is why they're misinformed because of the disinformation campaign of the media. That is a lie. Can Martha Raddatz or the scriptwriters and directors and producers and the other 12-year-olds who wrote this for her, can Martha Raddatz show us in the decision in Dobbs where women were stripped of a constitutional right? Can she? No, she can't. She's a propagandist, ladies and gentlemen, and a moron. And, of course, she speaks for all women out there. They just presume and insist that they speak for all women. Go ahead. The conservative majority upheld Mississippi's ban. It's not a conservative majority. It's a constitutional majority. This isn't politics. This is the Constitution. People have said to me almost my entire life, well, what do you think about the conservative approach or the liberal approach? The guy said, there is no conservative or liberal approach. You're overlaying political language on what is a constitutional interpretive process, adjudication. You either follow the Constitution, which doesn't mean you'll end up as the same as the next guy next to you, or you don't. Go ahead. 15 weeks of pregnancy, with five of those justices voting to go even further, overturning Roe v. Wade. Now, here's what she doesn't say. Most of Europe has a limit on abortion. 12 weeks, 14 weeks, 15 weeks. You know how they always say, and Bernie Sanders goes, even in Europe. There's very few nations in the world that have unlimited abortions. And most of them are tyrannies. Most of them are communist regimes. Like China, like North Korea. Very few. But that wasn't even enough. 15 weeks wasn't even enough. So Martha Raddatz is telling you she supports abortion on demand. She supports partial birth abortion. Why doesn't she say it? Ladies and gentlemen... I support partial birth abortion. Now, let me explain what I mean, Martha, right? Isn't that what you should say? But she doesn't say that. Go ahead. The first time an individual right of this magnitude set in decades of precedent has been taken away. What do you mean decades of precedent? Two main cases, one of which broke 
almost two centuries of precedent, Roe versus Wade. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had almost 64 million abortions in this country. Does it sound like any state, any federal law, anything has been successful in slowing down abortions? And even here, nothing will slow down abortions. Many state governors have already said, and most of these are state governors, of course, who pushed old people back into nursing homes where they would die from COVID. Those governors. Because they so care about human life at the beginning and at the end. So if you listen to Martha Raddatz, you have no idea what's taking place. No nuance, no context, no explanation. Nothing. Nothing. Now, where Martha works in either Washington, D.C. or New York, you want an abortion, you get an abortion. You want an abortion virtually at any time, you get an abortion virtually at any time. Now, she should know this. This is a fact. And yet, look. Look at how she reports this. As if she's Elizabeth Warren, because she is. Go ahead. It's the announcement abortion rights activists have swarmed the court. Ah, shut up, you idiot. You do a grave disservice to women. You do a grave disservice to babies. You do a grave disservice to the truth and freedom of the press. You should hang it up and join the DNC. You jerk. And then there's Frederica Whitfield. A host at CNN. What does she have to say? Cut to go. Get the latest uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court decision coming down today on a religious liberty case that further erodes the line between church and state. It ruled that further school- erodes the line between church and state. Further erodes the line between church and state. What line has been eroded? Where is this eroding taking place? All they ruled is that some poor guy, a coach for a football team, after the game, would quietly go on one knee, the corner of the field, and pray to God for 30 seconds. And some of the players asked to join him, and he said, okay. That that erodes the line, you see, ladies and gentlemen, between separation of church and state. No, it doesn't. What did the framers mean by this? Now, if I tell you what the framers meant, their next response is, oh, those are just a bunch of white slave owners. So on the one hand, on the one hand, I can tell them the whole history. On the other hand, it won't matter. It's their agenda. It's their ideology. It's the only thing that matters. Do you want to know why really they don't want that man on his knee praying? Do you want to know really why they don't want people attracted to what he's doing, particularly young people? Because it undermines their agenda. What's their agenda? Critical race theory. There's no limits on critical race theory. Transgenderism, sexualizing little kids. They don't want any interference with that. Religion, faith, morality gets in the way. Just like they attack the family, a man and a woman with kids. No, 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 no. That's bigoted. The American Marxist movement further erodes 
the line. Now, Frederica Whitfield has no idea that she's embracing embracing Hugo Black and what he stood for early on. Because just like Martha Raddatz, she's a moron. But this is what she believes. So they talk to each other. You have a host talking to one of the reporters and then talking to some phony expert, maybe a professor, all cherry-picked, hand-picked. All cherry-picked, hand-picked. But the worst of the bunch, in my view, and the dumbest of the bunch, in my view, and that's quite a bar there, is Chuck Todd. First, he invites AOC on Meet the Depressed. AOC is nothing but a low IQ, big mouth rabble rouser. And he brings her on Meet the Depressed. AOC is a coward. Mr. Producer, once again, reach out to her office and tell her I'd like to talk to her on the radio, okay? I'm quite serious. Put a phone call and in an email. Phone call and an email. We'd love nothing more than to have AOC on this program where she could be effectively challenged. Or Chuck Todd, you call in. You can come on this program. Invite him again. What's he turned us down 412 times? Ah, forget it. But listen to how Chuck Todd is stoking violence. Stoking violence. Stoking hate for the United States Supreme Court because Chuck Todd, like Martha Raddatz, believes in abortion on demand right up to the last second. They don't tell you what they believe, but that's what they believe. And so does AOC and so does the Democrat Party. Abortion on demand right up to the last second. Infanticide. That's what they support. Chuck, what does the science tell us about that? Is that a baby you jerk or isn't it? Is it or isn't it? Cut 12, go. It's interesting you say that. I want to put up the Joe Manchin quote in particular on his reaction because he emphasized, he used the word, he said, they testified under oath. He made sure that was in his release. It sounds like mm-hmm. you believe, okay, that he, he might as well be saying they lied to him. Now they love that- Joe Manchin. They hate him, but now they love him. Just like they love Liz Cheney. They hated her, but now they love her. Go ahead like they lied to him and they lied, they lied. under oath. You think the House Judiciary Committee should oh, hold on, begin hold on, the hold process? Hold on, hold on, because Manchin said they lied. That's a fait accompli. Manchin is a very stupid man. He's a man who is, has both feet firmly planted in the air. He's walking a tightrope. Look at the guy walking a tightrope. Big slob. They lied. They lied. Go ahead. Investigation there. So now Chuck Todd is prodding for an investigation of the justices. Just follow me on this. This Democrat fraud, this partial birth abortion infanticide believing fraud. Go ahead. If we allow Supreme Court nominees to lie under under oath and secure lifetime appointments to the highest court of the land and then issue issue without basis, if you read these opinions, issue without basis rulings that deeply undermine the human and civil rights of, of of the majority of Americans. 
We must uh, see... Notice she won't say women? Notice that, Mr. Producer? Of Americans. This, this is what we're dealing with. Insanity. Go ahead. That through. There must be consequences for such a deeply destabilizing action and a hostile takeover of our democratic institutions. Wow, that's not anything like what Trump said on January 6th, is it? I want you to listen to me. I have to take a break. But AOC, Chuck Todd, they're all the same ilk. They are beating up this country day in and day out, beating down our institutions day in and day out, beating up anybody who stands up to them, anybody who's trying to protect these institutions. That's what they're doing. Nobody ever says AOC is angering and creating a mob. Nobody ever says Chuck Todd is angering and creating a mob or Martha Raddatz or anybody else. And yet they are, and they have, and they do. This is what Democrats do. From their days of the Confederacy up to segregation into their current Marxism mode. This is what Democrats do. As they carry the banner, they won't admit it, of Sanger. I just told you about 40% of the abortions that occur in this country are with African-American women who represent about 13% of the population. They know that. They know that. The vast majority of abortions aren't from liberal, wealthy, white women who run the Democrat Party or part of the Democrat Party who are in the media. They're not the ones getting abortions. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile are charging you a premium fee every month for data you don't use. Stop paying for things you don't use. Instead of paying $89 a month to your current provider, pay just $20 to Pure Talk for what you actually need. I made the switch, and I'll be honest. I was nervous at first, thinking, well, is the coverage really going to be that good? Am I going to drop calls, slow internet? I can tell you firsthand. The 5G service is that good. Switching to Pure Talk was that easy. So listen, don't sit on the fence any longer. You're being ripped off by greedy wireless companies. It's time to take the leap and start saving money every month. Go to puretalk.com, select a plan, then enter promo code Levin Podcast. That's L-E-V-I-N Podcast and save 50% off your first month. You can literally be switched over to Pure Talk service in less than 10 minutes. So go to puretalk.com and enter promo code Levin Podcast. You're listening to the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Independence Day. Ladies and gentlemen, let me just put it as concisely as I can since I spent a lot of time on this last week. As Tom Jipping has pointed out, the national interest, every Supreme Court nominee who has referred to a precedent as settled has not only meant the same thing, but has even defined it during their hearings. That includes individuals like Sotomayor and Kagan saying such things as settled law of the land. And they don't say that. Of course, these decisions can be reexamined. Settled means that a precedent is entitled to respect. 
it doesn't mean it's entitled to a constitutional enshrinement. Sotomayor explained, all precedents of the Supreme Court I consider settled law subject to the deference which the doctrine of stare decisis would counsel. That is the precedent of the court. Kagan has said the same thing. Roberts has said, they all have said the same thing, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And now they're accusing the constitutionalists in the court who said exactly the same thing. They took exactly the same talking points of lying to them. When you say it's the precedent of the court that deserves respect, you're not saying, and you cannot say, that I would rule differently should a certain case comes up. So they are now lying. A Chuck Todd is a sickening propagandist. He's a man with a big lie. He would have worked beautifully under Putin. So it is they, AOC, who is lying. It is Chuck Todd who is lying. It is Martha Raddatz who's lying. And not to be surprised that the same phony journalists and the same Democrats say the same thing and lie about the same thing. To say that a matter is settled court precedent that deserves respect is not to say that it can't be reexamined ever and for any purpose. Every justice has said, or justice nominee, exactly the same thing. I'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to ask you a question. Did you know withdrawing your cash from the bank can be very risky? That's right. Banks are now required to spy on us for the government. And they report any behavior they think is suspicious. It's true. And I was shocked when I read this secret war on cash from Swiss America. The new war against cash is really a war against the Constitution. Against all freedom-loving Americans. So, you need to read the war on cash. Get your free copy by calling 800-630-1492. 800-630-1492 or visit SwissAmerica.com. Now, this war on cash is growing daily and also includes all forms of digital money. Please get and read The Secret War on Cash free to my listeners by calling now 800-630-1492, 800-630-1492 or visit SwissAmerica.com. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in America with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, much, much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. My wife Julie and I decided it was time to add more flowering trees to our landscape, and Fast Growing Tree was a great resource for us. A large selection and no hassle ordering or shipping. This spring, they have the best deals online, up to half off on selected plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code LEVIN at checkout. L-E-V-I-N. Now that's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code LEVIN at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code L-E-V-I-N. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Please visit FastGrowingTrees.com for details. He's here. He's here. 
now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. This is the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Independence Day. Cash Patel worked for Devin Nunes. Cash Patel was chief of staff to the acting Secretary of Defense, and Cash Patel is a good man. How are you, my friend? I'm great, Mark. Thanks so much for having me back on the show. I want to be very specific, very specific. Did or did not President Trump and or his administration offer National Guardsmen to Nancy Pelosi and her people before January 6th? Unequivocally, yes. January 4th, in the Oval Office, I was there with the Commander-in-Chief, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the Chief of Staff for the President of the United States, where the President unequivocally authorized up to 20,000 National Guards men and women on January 4th. Immediately thereafter, as Chief of Staff of the Department of Defense, we executed that authorization and went to Nancy Pelosi and the Capitol Police and Mayor Bowser, and they all said no, and Mayor Bowser put it in writing. And the United States Capitol Police timeline that was just released shows that they declined and put it in writing. Mm-hmm. Do we know why the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, declined the president's offer for National Guardsmen? And how many did he offer? The president offered up to 20,000. And the way the law works, as you know, Mark, is the president can authorize the National Guard, but the second component of the law is there must be a request by a federal agency or a governor, in this case, mayor of D.C. And Nancy Pelosi controls the federal Capitol Police, and therefore they report it to her. And why they did not want it, I would leave it to the political experts. I'm a national security guy, but they they seem to be uh, worried about the optics, just like they were worried about the optics of Lafayette Square, though there was the hypocrisy in their way. And they also could have put up a a no-climb fence around the Capitol. They failed to do that. And they failed to have federal law enforcement there surrounding the Capitol, such as the FBI and DHS. They failed to do a great many things that would have been very simple to do. I'm asking these questions because of the testimony today. Cass Hutchison, was she in that Mm -hmm. meeting with your group, with the President of the United States, when the President of the United States decided to offer up to 20,000 guardsmen to protect the Capitol building? Yeah, I mean, not to, not to be glib about it, Mark, but, you know, junior staffers who sit uh, far away from the Oval Office and have nothing to do with the National Security of the United States are nowhere near those meetings. And rightfully so, the Oval Office is a SCIF. It's a secure compartment and information facility where we were discussing with the president some of the most national, sensitive national security operations unrelated, obviously, to January 6th. That's why I remember that meeting so vividly, because the Department of Defense under President Trump did not stop our no-fail mission, and we continued on that morning. But let me be clear, she was not in that meeting, correct? No one else was in that meeting other than the five people I listed, except for maybe um, one other person coming in and out. <clears throat> but not her. Now, not her. She, was <laughs> she testified that Mark Meadows had received some intel of the potential dangers on Capitol Hill, that some of these people might well be armed. Wouldn't it be rational to conclude that if the executive branch had that information it would have been shared with or perhaps came from capitol hill the capitol police and so forth 
the FBI, and others? Well, what we've learned is from the Biden DOD Inspector General investigation of the DOD's conduct leading up to January 6th, where they found themselves, the Biden Inspector General, that we did not delay and we acted appropriately and swiftly in relation to the National Guard. It also found that the FBI had sensitive intelligence that they selectively shared with Chuck Schumer and not with the other intel agencies and law enforcement community writ large. So those are questions Chris Ray can only answer as to why he failed to do that. And any information we received, of course, we acted upon. But, of course, President Trump proactively, preemptively said, just in case, I'm giving you the authorization because that's what the law requires. And so you can use it not just in Washington, but anywhere across America. Let's go ask the governors if they need it. Now, Cass Hutchison said today that President Trump knew that people or many people among his supporters, the protesters, were armed. But he didn't care. He wanted them to be let in because something to the effect that they weren't armed to hurt him. Have you heard anything like this from anybody? Of course not. And of course, this is a direct, what we call directed examination from the unselect committee. No one's allowed to ask actual questions of what you're asking. Were you in the room? Did you witness this? Is this three levels of hearsay from something you read about after you were not given the job you wanted after the administration? Now you're seeking a vendetta. And who did you hear this from? And what intelligence did you have access to? Cassidy Hutchinson did not have access to the presidential daily briefing, which I helped curate when I was deputy director of national intelligence and which I received as chief of staff of DOD. She was nowhere near that intelligence. The president was the most uh, uh, voracious uh, acquirer of, of intelligence that I'd ever seen, and he made his decisions based on that. That's why he, of his own volition, authorized the National Guard. He knew to act based on any intelligence he saw fit to secure not just the capital, but any state capital across the country. Isn't this really the biggest problem, this committee, the media, this U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., this attorney general who went after parents, isn't this their biggest problem? That is, you have the president of the United States authorizing up to 20,000 National Guardsmen two days before January 6th. It's turned down by the Democrats on Capitol Hill. So why would he be urging an insurrection by the Proud Boys of the Oath Keepers at the same time he's offering 20,000 armed soldiers to protect the building? Can you make sense of that? Can I take it one step further if I can, Mark? So it's a factual and legal impossibility. The commander, when I was DOD chief of staff, I was in charge of, by law, the presidential transition, which can only be authorized by the commander-in-chief. And in November, the president of the United States authorized and ordered the Department of Defense to transition to the Biden administration. We conducted the largest DOD transition in U.S. history. That could not have occurred if the commander in chief was leading a quote unquote insurrection or military coup. He had ordered our transition. So this committee, which I was subpoenaed by first out of any American and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars telling them what I'm telling you, they want nothing to do with the facts. They couldn't care less about the, the, the truth that you and I are talking about today. And they wanted to know more about President Trump's personal preferences in Afghanistan, Somalia, and Syria than they did about January 6th or the memorandums from DOD that I supplied them uh, that are the truth. They want nothing to do with them. Let us be clear, Cash Patel. You were telling me, in addition to offering the National Guardsmen 48 hours before January 6th, You're telling me that the President of the United States 
had authorized in November the Department of Defense to prepare for a transition of power. Did you testify to those two? Hold on now. Hold on. Did you testify to those two facts to this committee when you were subpoenaed? Uh, you know, I did my testimony in December. It seems like something I would have said because it's not new. I also entered, I know I did this. I wrote an, uh, a, an article for foxnews.com about the presidential transition and what we just discussed. And I entered that as an exhibit into evidence before this committee. Um, they could not care less about that. I remember that. And I talked to, I tried to talk to them about how it would not be possible for an insurrection to have occurred but uh, they, they did not want to go down that path. And, of course, as you know, they control the time and the gavels there. So they were aware from the article that the Department of yeah. Defense had a transition going on ordered by President Trump. They were aware of the National Guardsmen. Did you tell them that? Absolutely, 100%. And I entered it all into evidence. And when I went back, finally, I've been asking for my transcript to be released to the public. Of course, they won't do that. They let me read it just two weeks ago for the first time since December. And I asked them where the exhibits were, that, including this article in the DOD timeline and the DOD response, and why wasn't it in the record as we entered it? And they said, oh, it was, a, it was an error. We forgot to do so. So they clearly don't want to do anything regarding the truth. They want to politicize it. So if information came out that the president, and you sedated this under oath, and apparently you're not the only one, offered up to 20,000 National Guardsmen two days before January 6th. And information mm-hmm. came out <clears throat> that the President of the United States in November authorized the Department of Defense to transition to the Biden presidency. An insurrection is an impossibility. That's correct. I think you're the first one to put that out on the airwaves. I'm, I'm glad you're covering it. I'm just asking basic questions. That's how I was raised, you know, as an attorney, as a litigator to some extent, and so forth and so on. That's what you learn. That's why you need two sides to everything, right? Now, I'm going to read you're something to right. you, Cash Patel. Yeah. The no, testimony no, you're did, right. I'm a former yeah. public defender. Say that again. I'm a former public defender and federal prosecutor. You're right. You have to have both sides. This committee does not. Cass Hutchison testified today that she heard from a Secret Service agent talking to the Council to the President that the President of the United States wanted to join the mob when the violence was occurring, that he was in the so-called beast, his vehicle, that the driver, the Secret Service agent, the presidential driver, said absolutely not, that Trump put his hand on the wheel, she was very explicit in detail, that the driver asked him to remove his hand, and put his hand on Trump's arm, and then arm, and then Trump went for the driver's throat with his other hand. NBC has released the following statement, quote, a, and by the way, I had spoken to a f- friend of mine at Fox and said, that can't be accurate, because if the agents did that, they'd have the agents testifying, not her. Quote, a source close to the Secret Service tells me both Bobby Engel, the lead Secret Service agent, and the presidential limousine SUV driver are prepared to testify under oath that neither man was assaulted and that Mr. Trump never lunged for the steering wheel. Now, how hard would it have been for this committee to ask these two Secret Service agents what actually occurred? Cash Patel. It would have been 
it would have been easy. I know Bobby Engel. I served with him. He's a great American, great former Marine. And not to mention the fact that how would this Cassidy Hutchinson know anything about the inside, and I was just about to post this on Truth Social, of the beast of the presidential limousine. I've been in it. I know she hasn't. It's a factual impossibility for him to have reached and lunged anywhere because of the barricades that are set up to protect the president when he's in that limousine. Furthermore, as you said, Bobby Engel, you know, should he have to get into this mess and testify, I know what he would testify to because I, I served with him on Air Force One in the limousine with the president and so forth. And this is just fake news at its best because the, the, the Democrats have found a witness, as you said, to provide a one-sided story. And no one's asking basic questions like you're asking. She just has, doesn't have the facts, but she has politics on her side. And I'm guessing a job at CNN coming in the future. This is her fifth appearance before this committee. And earlier, according to a news report, she felt like they were wearing her down. She didn't put it that way, but pretty close. Is that what this committee is all about? How many federal prosecutors? I hear there's 11 former federal prosecutors, two former U.S. attorneys on this committee. Doesn't that reveal what they're really up about, trying to lay a predicate for a politicized U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., and a politicized attorney general in Department of Justice? Yeah, I can speak from my experience. The first subpoena under this committee was issued to me. I learned about it at in the evening because the Washington Post called me, not because they told me or called me or asked me to come in and testify, which I told them I would have done because I feel it's my duty to do so and make sure the American public have the truth, like you and I are talking about. They didn't care. They spent six hours interrogating me. The January 6th committee spent one hour on January 6th and five hours on Afghanistan, Somalia, Syria, Iraq, the border, President Trump's hobbies, and any other conversations I might have had with President Trump. These federal, so-called federal prosecutors, when I was federal prosecutors with them at DOJ, only cared about a one-sided political story. They did not care about a constitutional oversight investigation at Congress the way we ran it, the way I ran it when I ran the Russiagate investigation with Devin Nunes. There were no two sides. There was just a political tale. They don't care about the truth. And you and I are both experienced. I was chief of staff to Attorney General Meese. I represented him in Iran-Contra. And as bad as that independent counsel was, it's nothing like this committee. This committee is violating people's rights left and right. They are purposely lying to the American people about the events that occurred. It seems to me it is the lawyers on this committee who should be reviewed for possible ethics complaints and disbarment because they are lying. For instance, lying by omission. Your testimony, whether it's attached in the form of an article, they could have called you back and asked you about that article, but they didn't want to or whether it's about the National Guard, and there's probably other witnesses that have given other information, exculpatory information that gives the lie to all this. Cash Patel, can you hold on for a moment, please? Of course. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. This is Mark Levin wishing you a happy 4th of July. Now back to the best of me. It's a very short segment, so I've asked Kash Patel to join us after the bottom of the hour. He's former chief of staff to the acting secretary of defense. He's been a federal prosecutor, been a federal defender, been a staffer to uh, Devin Nunes. And you heard what he said. I was asking him questions that have never been asked of him. And not by this committee, because this committee doesn't want honest answers. This is the biggest sham imaginable. And today, today, the media and the phony legal analysts 
the phony journalists, well, they figured they had him, you see, like Saul Weisenheimer, or whatever his name is. Oh, this is definitely, you know, seditious conspiracy. He should know better than this. What the hell is wrong with these people? Folks, hold on. We'll be right back with the former chief of staff to the acting secretary of defense. I'll be right back. This is the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Independence Day. We're back with Cash Patel. By the way, it was a wonderful children's book out. The Plot Against the King. The Plot Against the King. You know, on Amazon.com, we have it on all of our social sites. Uh, Mr. Producer, let's make sure we do that. I believe we have. So, Cash Patel, what we know now and what the committee has not revealed is that you stated under oath that, in fact, 20, up to 20,000 guardsmen were offered to the mayor of Washington, D.C., to Pelosi and her Capitol Police. They were not accepted. And uh, that was on January 4th, 48 hours before what took place on January 6th. We still don't really know why Pelosi chose not to, because that apparently is not the subject to this committee. 1,000 witnesses, but apparently 1,001 is too many. You've also indicated during this program that Cass Hutchison, who was the quote-unquote star witness today, was not in the Oval Office meeting when President Trump did in fact... Uh, offer the troops and tell his people to carry that out. Uh, that's number two. And number three, while she was chief of staff to the chief of staff, you and I both know she was not in senior staff in all these meetings when Trump, in the decision-making process, when Donald Trump tweeted today and said he barely even knew who this woman was, that's accurate too, isn't it? That's all accurate. That's a great summary. I wish America would just read those three points and then they would put to bed the January 6th on select committee. Um, they could easily have. All, and by the way, everything I testified about, the secretary of defense has testified multiple times under oath to multiple committees. Uh, the former secretary of defense, Chris Miller. And we also know this, uh, Mark. Uh, Chairman Milley was in that meeting. That man has proven himself to be a political animal like no other in Washington, D.C. If what I said and what President Trump said, and what Secretary Miller said was untrue, Chairman Milley would have found a way to lie about it, to leak about it, and also he testified to the January 6th committee under oath. If he had said anything that disproved the truth mm -hmm. that you and I are talking about, that would have leaked overnight or would have been presented by Cheney and company, and you know it's not because they don't have it because it's a lie. I just want the American people to know what a cover-up and smear job this is. This is why they don't want an opposition. This is why they're not releasing transcripts. This is why uh, these two crucial points. You said that without Donald Trump agreeing in November, there couldn't have been a DOD transition set in place that you were in charge of, correct? That's absolutely right. So what kind of a president would lead an insurrection? against a Capitol building, you know, with a wink and a nod and using certain words and all the rest of it, plotting with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and all the rest, while he sits down with you and the people in the room, the Secretary of Defense, the head of the Joint Chiefs, you give him information, he authorizes the use of the National Guard, it doesn't add up, and it can't add up, and you're right, it's an impossibility. 
Let's pursue a few other areas here, if you don't mind, which is this. They do not mention that Donald Trump's rhetoric on that day doesn't even come close to what Chuck Schumer's rhetoric was when he was targeting Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and the likely links and consequences of that violent rhetoric. They have not mentioned, they say, Trump waited 187 minutes until he put out a statement to, for people to stand down. 187 minutes. Nancy Pelosi hasn't in weeks' time, weeks, denounced the likely assassination attempt on Kavanaugh. And in fact, every one of these Democrat Party leaders are urging on their mob. In many cases, their violent mob. They haven't told them to stand down. The Senate in the state of Arizona was locked into their offices. They couldn't get out. The cops had to come. They had to use, you know, force in order to protect them. And I can go on in different parts of this country all over the place. And you do not hear, you do not hear Pelosi. You do not hear Schumer. You do not hear AOC. You do not hear any of the reporters, Chuck Todd or any of the other, telling people to stand down. In fact, they say it's been mostly peaceful again. What do you make of that? Well, as a former prosecutor, DOJ, national security guy, this is just the two standards of justice that the American people are sick and tired of. The, the, the cast of characters you listed, plus I'll go one more, Maxine Waters, literally went to the steps of the United States Capitol after the Roe decision, um, and said, after the Dobbs decision, and literally said, we need to march on, march on the chiefs of the, the Supreme Court justices and anyone that stands in the way, and then defy a valid constitutional order from the Supreme Court of the United States. That is insurrection. But this DOJ is so politicized, and I'm so ashamed to have ever been a part of it with the way it's carrying on now. Amen. And that's what kicks everyone off. You've got 40 people in custody detained from January 6th who are over the age of 60 with no criminal record. But anyone who questions January 6th on the other side of the aisle gets regaled as a hero even when they break the law. You worked on Capitol Hill. Have you ever seen... A committee like this, I know you've never seen a committee like this, but have you ever seen a committee call out colleagues in Congress, uh, one-sided, all Republicans? Have you ever seen a committee conduct itself this way because they're doing the, the dirty work of Nancy Pelosi? I've never seen anything like this. No, and look, I was the chief investigator for, I would argue, one of the most consequential investigations in U.S. history, the Russiagate investigation, when Devin Nunes was chairman. And we had, of course, Adam Schiff on the other side. And even with him and his crew on the other side, <clears throat> that at least that investigation was able to uncover the truth because it was truly bipartisan and the Republicans cared about the truth. And that's the difference. They, even then, they wouldn't <laughs> personally attack members of Congress. But this committee doesn't care about that. They don't care about what happens to citizens or likewise. They don't care about my safety or how much money it costs me and how many death threats I've received thanks to their subpoena. By the way, no one's ever covered that. I was called vicious and nasty things, sent direct mail to my home and asked to be beheaded and butchered and sent to Gitmo. But they don't care about that. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Liz Cheney, what do you make of her? She bought into this, this lie that Donald Trump had... Uh done nothing when Putin was assassinating American soldiers on the battlefield. It was a flat-out lie. She promoted it. 
she's always hated Donald Trump because of his, his approach to foreign policy is quite different than her father's and hers, don't you think? Well, it's warmongering versus peace. And look, I was deputy director of national intelligence. I gave the president, along with Rick Grinnell, the briefing on the Russia soldier, quote-unquote, bounty gate issue. There was no issue because there's no intelligence to support it. But, of course, the deep state leaked false classified information and allowed the likes of Liz Cheney to trumpet it. And then you know what happened. A year later, um, the media came out and said, oh, actually, that information that Liz Cheney everybody was saying is totally false. And it received the last line of some correction and some Looney Tune outfit. But we could have easily leaked classified information to fix the narrative. That's just not what we did. And President Trump acted on the intelligence appropriately then and always. I was in the room with him when he killed Baghdadi and brought home American hostages. I've seen this man, maybe more than anyone, execute actual actionable intelligence lawfully and appropriately. And I haven't seen him do otherwise. Why do you think they haven't asked you to testify at a public hearing? I'm not trying to encourage it. I know it's a pain in the ass, but still, you would push back. I'll represent you for free. I'll represent you for free. I'll take it. But I don't think they want that. They want Hollywood to come in and put on a showcase. Uh, That's that's the the Democrat narrative, be it Russiagate, Ukraine impeachment, impeachment two, bounty gate, January 6th. They, They can't handle the truth. Then they rely on the mainstream media to carry their lies. And when the mainstream media can't carry their lies to refute it with irrevocable truth, they bring in Hollywood to to make a bonanza out of it so that they can get their cheap political talking points. And that's what you saw on display today with Cassidy Hutchinson. All right. And they called an emergency hearing so the whole world would hear. This is her fifth or sixth time testifying in front of this committee. They really did wear her down, didn't they? I think they did, and that's what happens to look. She, you know, and it's not a personal attack on her. She's what barely twenty five, has no money. This stuff costs a fortune, and I'm sure, as, as as Donald Trump pointed out on Truth Social, a new set of attorneys recently swooped in to her defense, and now she finds herself on the front stage. I don't think that's a coincidence. Somebody should be asking how many of these attorneys worked for or with the the likes of Cheney and Benny Thompson and Adam Schiff. Um, and I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if it was another basically fusion GPS style operation, but, um, that's for another day. And I, I can't they say, they say, all right, tell me about your book. Go ahead. No, it's, uh, I wrote it's, it's Russiagate for kids. I thought that it would be fun to educate our children on the truth without making it political. So we set it in medieval times with Hillary Clinton and Keeper Comey and the Shifty Knight and a dude named Devin and whose quest we went on for truth. And we want our children to be taught the truth about our history and not about critical race theory. So we wrote The Plot Against the King, and it's at theplotagainstthekeng.com. Thanks so much. It's the number one children's book in the country, and Amazon and Google are already trying to shut it down. (laughs) The Plot Against the King, ladies and gentlemen. It's up there on our various social sites. I encourage you to get it. This man is a great patriot, and notice how he's being censored. It's being censored because he has two of the most important pieces of information in the whole damn hearing. All right, Cash Patel, thank you, my friend. Thanks, Mark. I hope to talk to you soon. Have a great night. You too. God bless. You just learned more on this program than you have learned all day long in this hearing. In fact, on all the hearings. All of them. This is what we mean by exculpatory testimony and evidence. This is what we mean by other witnesses. This is what we mean by having opposition who can challenge witnesses. Every one of these witnesses coming in for this committee is being coronated. Coronated. 
And that's not the way the system is supposed to work, is it? And now we know what she said about that Secret Service vehicle. If it wasn't an intentional lie, it was an intentional misstatement. That's what she said she heard. And this committee to put this out, it was clearly hearsay. Maybe double hearsay. But as soon as they didn't ask those agents to testify, that's why I told a friend of mine at Fox, then smell right. Because why would you go to her and hearsay who heard something? Why would you go to her versus the source? Because the source won't tell them what they want. Because they're liars on this committee. They are affirmative liars. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. You're listening to the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Independence Day. I would encourage Kevin McCarthy, next time he's on this program, I will suggest it, to put out a, uh, a protective order or request to this committee and to the Speaker of the House. So when the Republicans, God willing, if you folks make certain of it, take control of the House of Representatives, they can then go through all the information gathered by this committee. All their texts, all their emails, all their communications with Pelosi and the press, as well as all the evidence that they collected so they can go through it to see if, in fact, this committee provided that information to the American people with integrity and honesty, because it's clear they're not. And so I would encourage the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives right now to put out a specific letter to Mr. Thompson and to Dizzy Lizzie Cheney and to the Speaker of the House and to anybody else that needs to be on this letter. Do not destroy anything, hard copy, electronic, of any kind, of any sort. And then he ought to have a special group of investigators under certain trusted members of the Republican part of the House to go through it all and make a determination and then write the final report on this committee. We salute our armed forces, our police officers, our firefighters, and our emergency personnel. Good night, America. God bless each and every one of you.